Hey listeners, it's Lauren here with a message from our friends at DraftKings. The third round is in full swing, and the action increases from game to game. This is where the contenders are separated from the pretenders. To give you some skin in the game, DraftKings will be offering free-to-play pools every day of the basketball playoffs, offering players a free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes. That's up to $10,000 in total prizes up for grabs each day. The best part is that it's free to play. DraftKings free to play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to get your free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. This is Pratik Patel from ESPN Wisconsin, and I'm on the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Unfortunately, the Philadelphia 76ers' once-promising season was abruptly ended by the upstart Atlanta Hawks Sunday night. Sixers fans booed as their beloved team left the Wells Fargo Center court, falling one game short of reaching the Eastern Conference Finals for the second time in three years. I'm Aaron Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. To help us sort through what happened for the East's number one seed, we'll be joined by Dan Morgan of the Process Potables podcast, a wise and passionate resource on all things Sixers. Specifically, Ben Simmons is historically bad free throw shooting, and his related offensive disappearing act will be discussed as the franchise contemplates what to do with the skilled 24-year-old guard who has four years and $147 million remaining on his contract. Although the Australian guard has consistently hovered around 60% free throw shooting over his four-year career, not great but serviceable, this postseason he converted barely more than one-third of his attempts from the charity stripe, the worst percentage in NBA history for any player with at least 70 tries. As of Thursday, June 24th, Team management was meeting with Simmons' agent, Rich Paul, in Chicago to discuss how to move forward. According to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, no trade has been requested or demanded, and as of recording time, the 76ers remain committed to keeping Simmons as they try to develop his shot yet again this summer. Dan Morgan, whose podcast covers the 76ers and craft beer, will be brought on shortly, but first some detail on what he characterizes as the wildest week of his life back in early 2018. This was when the Eagles won their first and only Super Bowl. Late in the second quarter of Super Bowl 52, they deployed a fourth down trick play that culminated in a Nick Foles touchdown catch. If you Google Philly special tattoo, Dan Morgan comes up as he was the first person to get a tattoo depicting the formation and action of the play. He was featured by virtually every major outlet. And that wasn't even the craziest part of his week. The night before the championship parade, Dan and his group were taking a lift home from dinner when he found Eagles wide receiver Bryce Treggs' wallet in the back of the car. When he returned it to its rightful owner, Dan was given a practice jersey and a pair of wide receiver gloves from the Super Bowl. Now that you know a little more about Dan, We'll get right down to business and let him break down what went wrong for the 76ers 
before detailing the task ahead for President of Basketball Operations Daryl Morey and GM Elton Brand as they seek to strengthen the roster around Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris. Even though the team is still reeling from the bitter end to its playoff run, Dan remains optimistic, particularly with Maury heading the front office. Let's dig in. Dan, we're overjoyed to talk with you at this critical juncture in the 76ers franchise. We'll get to the basketball shortly, but first, I just wanted to check in with you. I know you and your co-host Steve attended Games 5 and 7. Those were obviously difficult for 76ers fans, to say the least. How are you feeling right now, now that you've got a chance to, pun intended, process this a little bit? All right. I was fine with everything until you had to drop the pun in there. My bad. Now I'm actually going to collapse and the emotions (laughs) are going to start flying in. No. It's been a few days and every day it's gotten a little bit better. The most frustrating part of the whole thing, it doesn't even have to do anything with what happened in the series or the roster construction or the coaching or anything. All things I'm sure we're going to get to. The most frustrating thing for me on a personal level is that I've been through this year after year after year, and it still gets to me, and I still let it bother me, and I still get my hopes up, and I'm just wondering, when will I learn? And apparently, it was not this year. I guess it's part of being a fan. We never learn. Yeah, unfortunately for Philadelphia fans, for the most part, we never learn, and we rarely get the you know, result that we want, wherein it seems like a lot of other, especially major markets, tend to have a lot more success. So it's it's very, very unfortunate. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And that makes complete sense. Expectations were sky high this season around the franchise after a spectacular regular season where they finished first in a much improved Eastern Conference. The First real basketball question I'll ask you is a little bit of an open-ended one. That game five collapse I referenced earlier, we have to start there, I think. The 76ers led by as many as 26, three minutes into the third quarter. No sixer other than Seth Curry or Joel Embiid made a single field goal that entire second half or scored more than two points apiece. Uh, meanwhile, Atlanta hit 16 of 22 fourth quarter shots, didn't miss a free throw. What were the most costly mistakes or failures against the Hawks, both in that game and the series more broadly? So one of the things I came to realize as the season progressed, and this isn't even a knock against the Sixers necessarily, I think a lot of people slept on Atlanta, and especially once they shortened their rotation, when you look at their lineup, even with DeAndre Hunter ending up not playing with the injury, like they're big and they're long. You have Capella and then you have Bogdan, you have John Collins, you have Kevin Herter, you have Danilo Gallinari. These are all guys that are at least six, 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 seven, if not bigger. So you look at Trey Young and obviously he's small, but he's incredibly fast. But the rest of the way, they're they're lengthy, they're tall, they're they're a lot like what the Sixers were supposed to be, except the Sixers kind of went away from that this year a little bit, especially when you go to their bench and you look at George Hill, you look at Shake Milton, you look at Tyrese Maxey. Like when they had to go to their bench, when they had to go to anything other than the starting lineup, they actually got pretty small. And Doc Rivers came out and talked about that after the game seven loss about how, you know, whenever they had to make any substitution, they weren't really able to keep their size up. And, I didn't think that was going to be a problem against Atlanta, and and I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why anybody didn't really talk about that more, but they're a lengthy team, and I think that that bothered the Sixers a lot, and especially when all of their scoring had to come from guys like Seth Curry and Tyrese Maxey other than Joel Embiid. Those are guys that, while they were trying their best to score, you know, Atlanta had a lot of capable guys to, to bother them, even when they had success and then especially when they didn't. We're going to be talking about the 76ers' depth and bench a little bit later, but just wanted to mention that they were outscored their bench 30-2 to in the second half of that devastating Game 5 collapse. So the bench play really did make a huge difference. But just zooming back out a little bit, the bulk of the coverage of the 76ers in light of their exit from the playoffs has understandably not been positive and That's a huge understatement. 
most commonly cited stat that I'm hearing is in the four seasons that Simmons and Embiid have been together, they've yet to get out of the second round. We interviewed Jared Weiss before the season as part of our Eastern Conference preview. And when I asked if this could be the last chance to prove that this duo can be on a title contending team, he really believed that it could be the final shot. He also said, especially in the modern era where bigs aren't usually a team's primary scoring option, at least the most successful teams, it would be a complete anomaly for Simmons and Embiid to pull it off. But I mean, it's also true that the 76ers fell in game seven of the Eastern Conference semifinals twice in the last three postseasons. One of them was that ridiculous Kawhi Leonard game-winning shot that bounced a million times on the rim. So there was that heartbreaker. And then they just barely fell short of the next round this postseason, of course. So everyone is panicking, predictably. Um, As someone who watches the team closely and has been doing so for years, what's the most realistic description of the state of the franchise and how serious should the front office be about making at least one seismic move that could potentially split up Simmons and Embiid? All right. Well, there's a lot there, but the first thing I have to address is that I don't know why I went into this thinking I wouldn't hear about Kawhi's shot. And again, I never learn. And I'm very upset. I think it's important context. They were no, so you're, no, it is, it is. I know, and that's what I mean. I just, I can't. Some of these things, I'm never going to be able to get get past. But so, the state of the franchise. I mean, the state of the fan base. Ultimately, I think is kind of what what came to mind first. And unfortunately, Philadelphia is one of the most negative markets that I think probably exists in in major sports in in North America. Even when things are going well. People in this city have wanted to tear the team down from before it even rising up. You start at the top of the episode making a pun about the process. Depending on who you talk to, the process ranged anywhere from three to 37 years. So it's unclear about when it started. It's unclear about when it ended. And then every season when they lose, it's, well, the process is over. The process was over three years ago, two years ago, this year. It's an absolute mess. It's, It's unfortunate, but the reality of it all. Honestly, the reality of it all is that the team is in really good shape. It it is very unfortunate that they blew an opportunity like this when it seemed like the stars were aligning for them. The Jazz get knocked out, the Nets get knocked out. The Lakers are already gone. Like there wasn't a whole lot that seemed like it was going to get in their way. The Celtics had a really bad season. The Heat were already gone. It it felt like everything was working for the Sixers, and then Trey Young comes in and shuts it all down. But they have Joel Embiid, who, if you take out the games played argument, was the MVP of the league. You have Ben Simmons, who is a 24-year-old transformative player. Both sides should have been the Mm -hmm. defensive player of the year, in my opinion, for sure. You have Tobias Harris, who, while, yes, everyone's going to look at the contract and say that he's not worth it, there's a lot of guys who aren't worth their contracts in the NBA, but he is a, a very high quality player should have been an all-star this year for sure. And has, has come a long way back from a disappointing season last year. They, they have things they can do. They have promising young players in Matisse Seibel and Tyrese Maxey, who Tyrese Maxey just had the most roller coaster postseason I, I I think I may have ever seen for a rookie. Highs, lows, looked incredibly effective on the offensive end and then wasn't in the rotation again, came back, did it again. It was crazy. And you go to the beginning of this series and when the Hawks upset them in game one and, and panic set in right away as as is known to happen. And everyone was complaining about Danny Green was the one covering Trey Young in game one. Well they go away from that. Ben Simmons takes on the assignment. Danny Green goes and gets injured. Another big loss for them. Another reason they ended up being a little bit smaller. Another reason that their depth got exposed a little bit. So while Danny Green is not a superstar, he's a guy that pretty much didn't miss time the entire regular season. And the biggest thing going for the Sixers going into this playoff run was their record when all five starters played. I believe on the season, they only lost five games when they had their their normal starting five start the game. So that was really what they were predicated upon was that starting five, that five man rotation that had like the best net rating in the entire league throughout the season. 
there's a lot of reasons that it all happened. Ultimately, it's a lot of shortcomings. And to the last thing I think you're really looking for here, you know, can can they exist, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid? Well, that's been the question for a long time. They existed enough to be the number one seed and, like you said, an improved East this year. So there's something to be said for that. The fact that I still don't know that you can say, no, it absolutely can't work. But the problem is, is year after year, the conversation happens. And of all of Ben Simmons' shortcomings, this was the worst. And I don't think it's it's close at all. This was far and away one of the most atrocious things I've ever seen. And that play where he has a baseline dunk after spinning past Danilo Gallinari, the closest defender is Trey Young, and he passes up the dunk to Matisse Thibel, who ends up getting fouled and splitting the free throws, is mm-hmm. is going to go down as one of the biggest blunders in Philadelphia sports history. And I think, unfortunately, after a moment like that, I'm not sure how you come back for it. The Sixers front office, the coaches, the players, they've all been trying to say the right things. There was the ESPN report on Monday, how they have a plan in place to fix Ben Simmons shot and all these things. And it all just sounds like damage control because ultimately, if it hasn't already happened, why is it going to happen now? So as I said so far, haven't learned from many mistakes to this point in my life, but the one lesson that I think I've already learned and I'm not going to get fooled again is believing that Ben Simmons is going to add something offensively this offseason. Yeah, you transitioned perfectly into my next question because I was going to ask you if you shared Doc Rivers' optimism in Simmons being able to do the right work finally this offseason because we know he's worked hard on his shot, but has it been the right work? That was Doc Rivers' argument at least saying that um, now that he has a year under his belt as head coach with Philly, that he has a a good idea of what should be implemented. So you're not buying that at all from Doc Rivers? I mean, he may believe it, but you you don't believe it? No, and the biggest reason that I, like, I've been a Ben Simmons defender since he was drafted. Ben Simmons was the reason that I became a season ticket holder. I actually purchased my season tickets the night they won the lottery where they were going to draft him. So, like, I've had a very, very close relationship with Ben Simmons since the night that they won the lottery. But the most troubling thing for Ben Simmons was it came out in a piece for Fox Sports from Yaron Weitzman, who famously in the past, I think it's been less than a year still, uh, published Tanking to the Top, which was a, a very telling book about the process and actually mostly accurate and had a lot of great sources and actually gets it right, which... Again, like I said, most people tend to not do. But the biggest thing that's scary is is if you read this piece, back when Brett Brown was still the coach and the organization was in shambles as far as who was actually in charge of anything, they actually had a shooting coach for Ben Simmons. His name was John Townsend. And Brett Brown hired him in 2016 to work with Ben on his shooting and his free throws. And Ben actually improved his free throw shooting to over 70% at a point under Townsend teaching him how to shoot. And what happened was years later, Ben's camp decided, no, he's actually going to work with somebody else. This guy, Liam, who is a former low-level Division I guard and assistant coach who now coaches Division II Colorado Christian University. So it's like you have this guy, you're seeing the results, the team puts that around you. And then Ben Simmons camp comes in and for no reason at all seems to say, actually, this is what we want. And that's the biggest issue for me now with Ben Simmons is I didn't necessarily buy into a lot of the stuff about, oh, he'll want to force his way to L.A. Oh, he's coddled. Oh, he's a baby. Because when he was at LSU, people said that he was lazy. People said that he didn't play defense. And now he's become a defensive player of the year candidate. So to act like he's lazy or uninterested or hasn't worked is not accurate. So I can't really hear that from anybody. But the Mm -hmm. one thing that seems to be consistent throughout is that he has a very close circle and he gets his way and no one's going to tell him he's wrong. And if he's not happy with the way something's going, you know, either he or somebody else is going to, fix it and get it the way that he wants and that seems to supersede what the franchise wants and that is never going to be okay with me for really any player but if there's one guy on the Sixers that you would maybe make that argument for it's Joel Embiid it's not Ben Simmons Mm -hmm. so if this is the way he's going to act if this is the way he's going to quote unquote work and we already have now 
five years of sample size for it, then I, I, I can't believe anything that anybody's going to say at this point. I think that's fair. The media is certainly piling on right now, and a lot of it is fair. A lot of it is not fair, but that's what happens when the expectations are so high. It doesn't matter that he's only 24 or that he's an elite defender who had a case, as you argued, for Defensive Player of the Year. It's just, it's such a shame given those obvious rare skills that he possesses. I do have to cite some of the free throw numbers. So 25 of 73, 34.2%. He had to be benched in critical situations because he was such a liability. Displayed that hesitancy too. And that was a prime example that you referenced where he had that dunk with three and a half minutes left in game seven, passed it. And we'll talk about what Embiid said about that a little bit later. But yeah, it's it's difficult. In the fourth quarter of games four through seven, he attempted a grand total of zero field goal attempts. I don't know why I said it. I guess I was trying to be dramatic. Um, <laughs> and six total points over those four games in the fourth quarters, three assists, two turnovers. So he wasn't even able to facilitate. It's just really glaring and no way to hide from it. He missed so many free throws in narrow defeats. Three for 10 from the free throw line in a four-point game one loss. One for five from the line in a three-point game four loss. And he went four for 14 in that game five loss that they only dropped by three points. So even if it's mental, which is what he said after game five, it's just, it's inexcusable, even if it's fixable. So we obviously have to talk about it. Yeah, and that's and I'm trying to stay more away from reacting to only this series or this season. But I just explained to you why those shooting numbers went down. He changed his shooting coach for no good reason because the success was coming. And that's where I have the issue with it. I could live with one bad showing, with one bad series. A year or two ago, a lot of us were looking at his free throw form and saying, it looks pretty decent. It's not great. It's never going to be elite, but it, it looks like it's there. So at least then, even if the results aren't coming through, if it looks kind of passable, you're figuring that at some point the law of averages will work itself out. But that's not the case anymore. And again, talking about bigger sample size, you referenced you know, what happened in in this series as far as the fourth quarter and especially games five through seven, Uh, I'll one up you there. And I I don't like having to do it, but this is the reality of what he's been in his entire career so far. He has played 19 second round playoff games, a total of 154 fourth quarter minutes in those games in 154 minutes. He has taken 20 shots. So when you look at guys like Shaq, Shaq was the best player on a championship team several times, and he was an offensive force. You didn't care if Shaq hit his free throws. I mean, maybe if he was 34%, you would have complained, but Shaq was usually, you know, hovering 50, let's say. But at that point, he was dominating so much, he was still getting points. And half the time, if he was shooting that free throw, it was probably on an and one because nobody was stopping him from scoring. If Ben Simmons was just doing a little bit of what everyone has seen him do before in these fourth quarters, attacking the rim, attacking the glass, creating things, like you said, he wasn't even a facilitator. If the other things are still happening, the conversation isn't as bad. So it's really on him. It's not people overreacting at this point because the argument has been every other part of his game is there. But in this series in fourth quarters, in second rounds of the postseason, it hasn't been. It hasn't been everything but the shot, everything but the free throws. There's been a lot of other gaping holes, and that is where the concern lies with this franchise. And as we've talked about a lot, Ben Simmons has been taking a lot of flack, especially from a lot of the talking heads on sports media. As you referenced, Stephen A. Smith said on Tuesday that he received a text from somebody close to the situation about Ben Simmons that said, quote, he doesn't work, he doesn't listen, everyone around him is family, he's constantly babied. But possibly more concerning, the statements by Embiid and Coach Rivers, respectively, Embiid, referring to that passed up dunk as one of the turning points in the Game 7 loss, 
And then Rivers, when asked if he thought Simmons could be an NBA championship caliber point guard, responding that he didn't know the answer to that, a statement that he later walked back. Do you think those type of statements could have lasting consequences with regard to the relationship between the players and the coaches on that team? Or do you just chalk that up to just had a devastating loss type of statement? I was annoyed with a lot of quotes that came out after the loss. And then as I came back down to earth, I told myself the same thing for them. I don't put a lot of stock into anything that was said immediately following that game. I mean, put yourself in that situation. That's very difficult. So it's easy to look, especially at Doc Rivers, it's easy to look at him saying, I don't know the answer to that right now as a negative connotation. But I mean, I don't know what was going on in Doc Rivers' head for most of this series. I surely don't expect that it cleared up following the loss to a five seed at home in a game seven because there were a lot of things that I questioned about Doc Rivers before he made those quotes. When I look at what people were saying the next day, and if you look at a lot of that, you saw people like Danny Green and Dwight Howard coming to Ben Simmons' defense. You saw Doc Rivers saying that he's still bullish on him, still believes in him. I mean, when Doc Rivers came in, you know, for the entire process era where Brett Brown was the coach. I mean, Brett Brown became the scapegoat and Doc Rivers was very adamant when he first got the opportunity saying, listen, I want a chance at at figuring out if I can make Joel and Ben Simmons work. Again, he had a lot of success with it, but unfortunately that success did not come through in, in the postseason. And that's the problem. And I think that that was probably his only shot. I think they had to go further to even consider buying time for the experiment. So ultimately what I think it's going to come down to for the Sixers, and there's a lot to figure out for the offseason, but what my guess is as far as just the, the major dominoes to fall is Ben Simmons is going to be the guy that is blamed for this. So Doc Rivers is going to get a pass because he wanted the chance to make them work. I think you just realize he can't do it either. And now Ben Simmons will be the scapegoat next season. Doc Rivers won't have the Ben Simmons excuse. So Doc Rivers is going to be on a hot seat pretty early next year. Now it's okay. We got rid of the whole Embiid Ben Simmons thing. Hey, now you don't have that problem. Make it right. And we'll see what he does with it. I don't, I don't have a lot of faith in Doc Rivers. I probably at this point have more faith in Ben Simmons than Doc Rivers, but I don't think that the Sixers are going to feel the same way. Suppose the Sixers front office does decide to field trades for Ben Simmons this offseason or next season, a topic of discussion that a lot of people have on their minds right now in the aftermath of that series. Are there any realistic options that you've seen that make a lot of sense to you or feel like they would work for the Sixers? So we recorded an episode Monday night of process potables where we talked about this a lot. And the, the biggest takeaway that I got from that conversation was a lot different than what my mindset was and what I think the general mindset is, because it's easier for most people. And this is why everyone thinks they're a GM, but nobody is. And being a GM is significantly more difficult. And the other thing I'll say is, well, I don't believe in doc rivers and I'm pretty sure I don't believe in Ben Simmons anymore. I do believe in Daryl Morey. And I absolutely love that Daryl Morey is the GM of this team. I have since before before they got him, I loved Daryl Morey. And I think he's done an incredible job. You know, the bench was a little short, but you can only do so much. He got out of the Al Horford contract. He turns it into Danny Green. He trades Josh Richardson straight up for Seth Curry, which is going to go down as one of the biggest steals in history. Because I'm sorry, Josh Richardson kind of sucks. And Seth Curry just had like the greatest three-point shooting playoffs there ever was, shooting over 50% at that volume. I mean, it's absurd. So if there's one guy that I think you, you come out of this still very positive about, it's Daryl Morey, and now it's time for him to to prove why that's the case. But to get back to Ben, what I think Daryl very well may do is you're not going to see Ben Simmons moved for the answer to the problem. You're not going to see you know a one for one where Ben is traded for player X and player X is you know a, a scoring guard that you don't have to take off the floor in crunch time. There's a very real chance that Ben Simmons actually has to get moved just for assets. And then the assets plus other things the Sixers already have in the chamber are used to make a bigger deal. Because think about the the real names that 
not even in regards to Ben Simmons, but who who are the guys around the league that are the most likely to move places right now? Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, guys with of that power you're not trading Ben Simmons for because those teams aren't going to do it. I don't imagine. But if you can trade Ben Simmons for things that those teams would be interested and then you add in more that you already have, then that may be the play. Daryl Morey so far did not pull the trigger for James Harden, did not pull the trigger for Kyle Lowry. And this was a year that a lot of people believed was the Sixers chance to win a title. So to not do that to me says that He's looking for something bigger. He's looking for something that actually makes their chances even better. And maybe that wasn't possible this year, but it might be possible this summer. If you're looking for people that maybe Ben is just moved for, that could be that you're looking at a tier below those big names of Dame Lillard, Bradley Beal. You could conceivably throw a guy like uh, Steph Curry into that as well as he's going to be due for a large extension coming up as well. But you go to a tier below that you look at, Zach Levine, you look at CJ McCollum, you look at De'Aaron Fox, and I think that in any of those deals, well, I shouldn't say any of those deals, Fox and McCollum are guys that I think are very even. You, The Sixers may have to sweeten it just a little bit. I don't think it would take much. I don't think it takes you know, a, a Thibault or a Maxi type of prospect. It probably takes like a pick and maybe you know salary dump kind of stuff. Levine is kind of in between where I definitely think if you're Chicago, you're interested in Ben Simmons and building around him, but you're going to want, you know, more than him in exchange for Zach Levine. And I think that that's fair. So that's the guy that I think actually makes the Sixers better than they were this year, straight up for Simmons, but you're throwing other stuff at that. And I'm not sure what that looks like. It's definitely probably a first round pick. And maybe that's enough to not cost you max your Thibel. The only thing I'll say, because for Sixers fans that are just sitting in the ESPN trade machine doing this all the time, you're going to see Thibel and Maxi as the two guys that are are generally getting thrown in there as as prospect sweeteners. If you trade Ben Simmons, you really can't trade Matisse Thibel because Matisse Thibel made second team all defense off the bench. That's how good he is on the defensive end. Ben Simmons should have been defensive player of the year, was the runner up wherever you fall there. Top three defender in the league. You can't trade them both. So Ben goes in a, in a deal for what quote unquote would be the answer. I don't think you can put Thibel in it because then you, you no longer have any defensive identity beyond Joel Embiid. And another guy who's catching a lot of heat is Doc Rivers. And you mentioned earlier that you don't have a lot of faith in him. This game seven loss dropped his all time record in playoff game sevens to six and nine. He's coached the most. Game sevens in NBA history, actually. He hasn't gone past the second round since he was with the Celtics. And a lot of people are citing his unwillingness to make adjustments down the stretch as a key vulnerability of his coaching style. Recently, he's been on the losing end of a lot of notable game and series collapses. Granted, some of it's bad luck or out of the control of the head coach, but when you're analyzing what went wrong in the series, how much of that blame in your mind falls on River's shoulders? And also, I guess, to keep it a little bit more positive, how much credit do you give him for the excellent regular season that the Sixers had? So the credit for Doc Rivers as far as what went well this season all really comes from the locker room and the chemistry. I don't think he really did anything as far as the scheme or the players that was really any different that mattered to their success. When you hear from a lot of the players throughout the season, the quote unquote vibes in the locker room were significantly better than we had ever heard. And when they were bounced last season and you knew Brett Brown was going to get fired, there's a lot of talk about people weren't being held accountable and there needed to be expectations set when they made the trade last uh, trade deadline and acquired Burks and Glenn Robinson the third from the Warriors. There was that weird quote from Glenn Robinson shortly into his time here, where he basically said, "Like I don't know what my role is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing." And it, it was very unclear on whether that was just him being kind of upset because he was getting a lot more minutes and a bigger role in Golden State, even though they were just you know a terrible team with Seth being out that season. And you thought that maybe they were going to welcome you know moving to a contender. 
but it didn't seem to be the case. They were never really utilized well, and they seemed unhappy. So the one thing that Doc Rivers has done this entire season is it seemed like the players have been happy. They've had a good environment. They, they've been upbeat, and especially when you look at the improvement in Joel Embiid's game, I think that comes from a lot of his mental attitude. But I also think that a big reason for their success was the jump for Joel Embiid, and I think that was more him experiencing losses, dealing with injuries, and finally taking that step to getting his diet right, trying to get his health on track. Um, he credits a lot of that to the birth of his child. So there's a lot of other things that have nothing to do with Doc Rivers that I think you can attribute to their success on the court. As far as what went wrong in this playoff series, I absolutely blame Doc Rivers very heavily. And I don't have to say very much to do it. I'm going to read you one thing about a lineup and it's going to tell you everything you need to know. If you, if you watch any of that series, if you have a general understanding of players that exist in the NBA and how postseason rotations are supposed to work. So I want to credit this where it's due. It's from a guy on Twitter named Dan Ollinger, who uh, I just discovered during this playoff run puts out a lot of really, really great Sixers stuff on Twitter. So the Sixers third most played lineup during the playoffs was George Hill, Shake Milton, Matisse Thibel, Tobias Harris, and Dwight Howard. That was their third most played lineup of the playoffs this season. One starter and four bench guys, two of which cannot shoot a basketball at all. That lineup finished with a net rating of minus 16 points, negative 16 points per 100 possessions per clean the glass. That is an atrocity. The entire playoffs the most casual of Sixers fans was screaming please stop with the all bench lineups please for the love of God we understood in the regular season that you weren't going to kill your players you weren't going to be Tom Thibodeau where you only play five guys and they are shells of themselves in the playoffs which you saw happen in the first round so that was understandable but once you get here you got to play your horses you've got to stop doing things like this And beyond throwing out these all bench lines, which he did finally make the adjustment of putting Tobias Harris in that bench lineup, but it wasn't enough. In game seven, in game seven of the Eastern Conference semifinals on your home court with a five seed taking you to your absolute limit, you put Shake Milton into the game, having not played him a single second to that point. You put him in in the fourth quarter as if Shake Milton is somehow now the answer to something. It's laughable. These are things that you don't see happen. And to go all the way back to the beginning of this, these things only seem to happen in Philadelphia. And I don't know why. And I continue to convince myself that they won't keep happening and they won't happen again. And Doc Rivers was supposed to be the answer to that because to this point, everyone had said it's Brett Brown. It's Brett Brown. And unfortunately, not so sure it was Brett Brown after all. Dan, not to defend Doc Rivers. I don't want to do that at all. But I have a question about the personnel and the depth. Given the Danny Green injury and the fact that Tyrese Maxey, even though He's shown flashes and he had some great playoff games. He's only 20, so you can only really expect the level of inconsistency that he showed. To have to rely on someone like him that much and also with Doc Rivers getting George Hill, who seems like he's done, wasn't there also just not enough depth for uh, Rivers to play with? Didn't he have kind of like his hands tied behind his back in a sense? So, yeah, I I have said that clearly there was a a little bit of you wish the bench was better. But, I mean, no team's bench is great. That's the point of the fact that you can't play these bench lineups is that that's not what you see teams in the postseason do. You see them run their starters heavier minutes, and that just didn't end up being the case. And, you know, this is going to include the Washington series. But when you look at this postseason run, the only guy on the Sixers who played more than 34 minutes a game through the playoffs was Tobias Harris at 36 and a half. You just have to play your best players. And then at least if you go down, then what are we going to complain about? But the fact that you kept putting out lineups and the lineups weren't working. I mean, it's one thing if if a, if a bench player has a bad game, you understand that's going to happen. And yeah, George Hill didn't look to be the deadline move that everybody thought. The Danny Green injury hurt, but 
look at that Hawks series and tell me who the top four players in that series are. And I'm guessing three of the top four you're going to give me are on the 76ers. So theoretically, all you need to do is keep two of them on the court at the same time. And you have two of the three best players in the series on the court all the time. That wasn't the case. They just did. He didn't stagger things right. He didn't, he didn't get it done. And I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of guys didn't, didn't step up, but you can't expect bench guys to be doing that. And you still had Matisse. I will play good defense. You still had Tyrese Maxey score points in bunches. So th- they, they had guys doing it. They just didn't have enough, but it's not like Atlanta had five guys on their bench, absolutely torching people. Their only bench player was really Danilo Gallinari. And for like one game, Lou Williams beyond that, there wasn't much coming off their bench either, and they won the series. So I, I don't really think that that's all that fair. I think it's a matter of how you play them and how you stagger the lineups. And I think that Doc Rivers did a really bad job of that. Another point to that is when you look at the Sixers stars or who are supposed to be their stars in the series and on their team, like we already talked a lot about the performance of Ben Simmons for Embiid as well. At points in the series, he clearly didn't look 100%. He was battling a small tear in his lateral meniscus. And despite that, logged close to 40 minutes per game over the last three games in the series. But he was pretty terrible in game four, honestly. He only made four of 20 shots, zero for five in the fourth quarter, and then one for five in the fourth quarter of game five. So it seemed like he was dealing with some fatigue issues possibly related to that injury. Uh, He had some monster games in this series and in the Washington series, but there was a bit of inconsistency due to those lingering injury concerns. So how much can you do about that when you're relying on Embiid, who will seemingly a lot of the time have those concerns? So Joel is going to continue to be an enigma as far as this is concerned. Again, an MVP caliber season and an incredible playoff run. You can isolate you know, situations where he wasn't great and clearly was wearing down, but you also have to look at how good he was with a tear in his meniscus. Still the fact that he was able to do what he did with that is, is unbelievable. And, you know, Philadelphia is a, a city where, you know, arguably the the symbol of the city is a fictional boxer who continued to get back up, and this city's always gonna, you know, be drawn to that. So, Joel's gonna get a lot of pass for some of his shortcomings in this, but a lot of them are gonna be, you know, paired with Ben Simmons too, and I think that that's fair because, you know, for all the MB turnovers and poor shooting nights, he's the only guy really on the team that was willing to be the person to go to and it doesn't work out but you couldn't even get Ben Simmons to take a dunk so what do you want a guy like that to do what do you want them to do the answer is you know get a a point guard that can shoot that can play in a pick and roll that can create their own shot so that in a a game like this you know you're not just dumping it to Embiid and you also are not letting the other team double and triple team him without being able to punish them, which is something they weren't able to do with guys like Ben Simmons and Matisse Seibel on the floor together because it's two guys that can't hit a shot, and one that refuses to shoot and another one that can't make them. So it's difficult. But the the last thing I'll say about Joel Embiid in regards to this, and it goes back to you know what they were saying after the loss and everything, and, and I think this tells you all you need to know about where the franchise is at, what their decision has to be, who they need to back, and who's the guy that isn't the one that people are going to put the blame on. Joel Embiid, after everything he did, playing on the injury, putting up the numbers he did, as soon as everything was done, he came out, said in his pressures, I have to do better, I can be better, I'm going to work on things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He went on social media, he said, Philly, I love you, I'm sorry I let you down, I can do better. You know, these are the things a guy who, who's you know putting up like 35 and 12 routinely on this injury is doing. And he's out there saying, I let you down. I need to do better. Ben Simmons is the one who is shooting 34% from the free throw line, passing up dunks, and in post-game press conferences is saying, well, I am who I am, and this is how I play, and this is what I like to do, and it is what it is. So... 
I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the two of them, about who's the problem, about what change needs to be made, and about who's the one that I'm not going to really put much blame on, even though I'm not blind to some of the things that could obviously be better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This will be the last question we have for you. And thank you so much. You've brought so much good information and passion around this team to this podcast. Looking toward the future, you said one person in this organization you do have faith in, other than Joel Embiid, obviously, is Daryl Morey. As a Houston Rockets fan myself, it was a sad day in Houston when they decided to let him go to the 76ers. But for this offseason and beyond, what do you view as a dream offseason for Maury and the Sixers? And what are the most pressing questions that the front office has to answer outside of what we've already talked about regarding Simmons? Well, I mean, there's we already talked about, it, but there's no real getting around it. The dream is Ben leaves and whether it's via accumulating assets for him and putting more together or somehow pulling off some insane blockbuster, maybe him and one or two of those prospects I, I mentioned, plus a few draft picks for you know a disgruntled Damian Lillard, for a Steph Curry who Golden State says, you know what, we're not really interested in you know signing you to another deal when it comes up at the rate you're going to want to get paid at your age with your injury history. Or Bradley Beal finally wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to stop being a, a content loser in Washington and get somewhere where I can actually win. I mean, those three are really the big three names in the league that I think have potential to move right now. And again, I, I have no delusions of grandeur that Ben Simmons gets you any of them without a lot thrown in. Or again, he's moved for something else that combined with that and things you already have get them. But the dream is you get one of those guys, a guy that can close a game, a guy that can honestly... Any of those three are the number one option over Joel Embiid. There's no getting around it. But the the beautiful thing is that if they're not having their night, then you have Joel. And if Joel's not having his night, then you have one of them. And that's the problem for the Sixers. You don't have anybody where if it's not Joel's night, then who else is it? And the crazy part is that Seth Curry actually, you know, stepped up and tried to do that in this series. So as much as he got hunted out on the other end and really can't play any defense, like you have to just give him credit for being like, well, screw it. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And the best part is that he's on a great contract for, I believe, two more years. I think he only makes like $16 million over the next two years total. So an absolute steal of a contract. You have Tyrese Maxey on a rookie deal. You have Matisse Seibel on a rookie deal. Tobias Harris, again, you bring in anybody I said, even if it's one of the guys we talked about earlier in the episode who's not necessarily a like an all NBA guy, but you know, an all star caliber player that lets Tobias Harris shift down to be the third option on this team. When we recorded our episode Monday night, my my biggest comparison to Tobias Harris as far as if you want to win a title is you look back at that Miami team with LeBron Wade and Chris Bosch. Chris Bosch is like looked back on as this phenomenal player. And it's not a knock on Chris Bosh. He's a great player. Do not get me wrong. But Chris Bosh was never going to be the number two option on a team that won the title. He wasn't good enough to do that. But he was an incredible number three. He was overqualified to be the third best player on a star team. I believe Tobias Harris falls into that category. He can't be the number two, but he is far overqualified to be the number three. So if you can bring in somebody to just put him into that third star peg, where Ben Simmons forced him into the number two role, which isn't for him, then I think you're fine with Tobias Harris. You have an actual big three. The NBA is you know, built around these big threes right now. You look at Milwaukee, you look at Brooklyn. So that's what it takes. But Tobias has to be the three. And then you can argue whether Joel's the one or two. I think as long as the guy you get is a, a very good two, if not a one, I think that you can be okay. And I think they have the ammunition to pull it off. We talked about a lot of things that everyone's been saying after all this happened. And my opinion is it's all smoke and mirrors to try and rehab what little trade value Ben Simmons still has. But as we've said, he's 24. He's under team control. His contract is four more years guaranteed. He's one of the few players uh, who signed to their rookie max and was not given 
a player option at the end of it. They are all team controlled years. He can't opt out of that last year like most guys can. So that's a big kicker. Any team that's going to get him controls him for four years as far as the contract is concerned. So as much as it looks bad right now, there's a lot of teams that are chomping at the bit, I bet, to take a shot at getting Ben Simmons into their building and putting the right kind of construction around him, which everyone's been screaming for years that the Sixers weren't doing that, that they couldn't. So someone's going to want to you know, actually prove that. And I'll be interested to see it, but it's not going to happen here. That's what I could tell you. Dan, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you about the Sixers today. I wish it was under a little bit more pleasant circumstances, but me too. thank you a lot for joining us today. It was my pleasure as far as, you know, hanging out with you two. That was great. It's, it's fun. And, you know, I like doing this, but yeah, the, the circumstance is not so great. Like I said, we recorded an episode Monday night uh, with a lot, especially if you, if you want Ben Simmons trade value and trade ideas, process potables on any platform or anything, you can find it. There's a lot more there. But if you're just here for the doom and gloom, and especially if you're here to dunk on the city of Philadelphia, well, yeah, I, I guess I'm the punching bag and that's okay. I am probably taking a break from basketball until the off season, uh, at least maybe until the NBA finals. I, I don't think I could bear to watch either conference finals. I haven't watched a second of either game thus far. So I, I need a little bit of a rest and I'm hoping Joel Embiid goes and gets his rest too and spends some time with Arthur and gets healthy and uh, is ready for a a new roster and a, a new regime where he ultimately reigns supreme and doesn't have to hear about all this noise about whether he can coexist with people anymore. And we'll see what they do. But as you said, Daryl Moore gives me a lot of faith. So I think if if Sixers fans are looking for anything to hang their hat on, we got this far with Brian Colangelo with insert blank name here because there's a while where there wasn't anybody. You had coach GM Brett Brown. You had uh, promoted from the G League after like two years Elton Brand. There's, you know, we, we got this far with that. Now imagine there's somebody that's competent. You know, that's what we have. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again, Dan. And I hope you and Joel can both take a well-deserved break this offseason. And I wish you the best for next season as well. Thank you.